1: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey Max, hey Aaron. Hey. Hey you guys, we got that good
0: internet right now. We just had bad internet before. Let's talk real fast, let's get through it. Let's do it, let's do it. We got that good internet. We might never have internet ever again. If this is our last transmission, <laughs> who's on the show this week?
1: On the show this week, my guest is Peggy Ornstein. A lot of people know Peggy Ornstein, but if you don't, she's a longtime magazine writer, multiple best-selling author. She's reported on pretty much everything Under the Sun, but particularly she's written best-selling books about teenagers, including one called Girls and Sex, one called Boys and Sex, one called Cinderella Ate My Daughter. But she's also written two memoirs, an earlier one called Waiting for Daisy, which was about her journey to becoming a mother, and the other, which is just out, literally just came out, called Unraveling, which is about how in the early days of the pandemic, she decided to go through the entire process from scratch of knitting a single sweater. And she started with shearing the sheep and then she dyes the wool, she spins the wool, she does the actual knitting. And in the process, a lot of things come up, personal and global about how our clothes are made. And it's a great book. And I wanted to talk to her about that. And we haven't had her on before, so all the other things we haven't talked about. Really enjoyed
0: it. Sounds fascinating. I'm just gonna blast straight to the ending here because I don't know if Max and Evan can actually hear me. I'm not gonna lie. I couldn't hear anything that Evan said until he said, it's a really good book and it was great to talk to her. And I believe that to be true. <laughs> I heard the sheep part also. We're not gonna retape this. We don't have any more time. The show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media to help us make the show thanks to them. And now here's Evan with Peggy Ornstein.
2: Peggy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited.
1: Me too. I know your work. We have friends in common. And having read this most recent book that's coming out, or it will be out, I think by the time this airs, when you sit down to write a book like this, do you think about the reader like me who will suddenly know a lot about you, not just facts about your life, but your thoughts and feelings about aging, about sex, about whatever the topic is?
2: Yes. And the short answer is there <any> yes. <laughs> I mean, sort of. There's a couple of different layers to that. And of course, I mean, unraveling in many ways is a, a less less intense on some of those scores than waiting for Daisy, which really was about like my sex life and mm-hmm. my husband relationship with my husband. Um in a, in a kind of more direct way and I can talk about that in a minute but there's there's sort of two levels i mean i think the first level is people you know and with this book i write about my relationship with my mom and i write some of, of a few things that were you know part of the more fraught or damaging parts of our relationship. And I love, you know, I was, I love my mom. My mom's great. Yeah. You know, I say, I say in the beginning of the book that when the pandemic hit, that I talked about it all day, every day with my mom, which was kind of funny because she was dead and had been for several years at that point. So my mom's in the book. I learned to knit from my mom, like so many other people, other women I spoke with did. But I also talk about um, things like the impact of my mom and my body image, for instance, and how she used to really push me to lose weight when I was a teenager, and she would try on my jeans to show how they fit her, even though I was 13, and then they were too big on her, even though I was, four, you know, and and those things were really, you know, she didn't mean to cause harm, but they caused harm. And when I write those things, it is on one hand a little easier because she is dead. And when I was writing Waiting for Daisy, there's some parts about my mom that I read, and I think I wasn't being honest there because I didn't want to hurt my mom. And I feel like the parts about My Mom and Waiting for Daisy are the weakest parts of the book because of that. And then I worry about those who are still here reading it. So I worry about her best friend who's still alive reading it. I worry about my brothers and sisters-in-law reading it. I worry that I'm going to seem like I'm betraying her to them. So that gets in my head a little bit. And then the part about other people, I think I've gotten kind of used to that at this point. Like there was a point where I felt sort of weird, especially when Waiting for Daisy came out because I didn't, I mean, I thought about it to the extent that I was very protective of my husband in that book. And I always joke, like, I'm not as crazy as the Peggy in that book. And he's not as wonderful as the Steven in that book. And I did run everything by him. And there was one point in that book where we did not agree on what happened. And he felt that my version of it made him kind of irredeemable, which maybe it should have. I don't know. But it was a moment when I was having a miscarriage in Japan and we were together and, and things went awry. And and so I ended up, the way that I dealt with it was by doing both our versions of it and saying, you know, memory, who knows? Uh, this is his truth. This is my truth. Maybe the truth is somewhere in between. And my editor didn't like She wanted me to take that out. She was really adamant. Am I taking that out? And I said, I'm not doing it. She said, broke voice, and I said, I don't care. You know, for my relationship, this is how I have to do it. So I was mindful of that. But with the with the people in general, like the general public, at this point, I'm so used to people. I mean, it's a version of yourself that you're putting out there, right? You're making yourself into a character, and people are supposed to think they know you. People are supposed to feel intimate with you, and so then when they do, and you're freaked out by it, you know what can you do? You you kind of have to blame yourself for that. So. I am sort of used to people thinking they know me in a way that they don't really know me. And I kind of have made peace with that.
1: What do you feel the level of separation is between the character you and you? Like, do you put space in there intentionally to protect yourself? Or is it that when you're doing things and reporting, or in this book, you know, you're actually taking action and you're writing about that action? Yeah. Are you sort of being a little bit more of yourself than you otherwise would be, and thereby creating that distance?
2: Well, I think what I loved about writing this book was that it gave me a chance to be funny. I mean, I'm I'm a fairly smart-alecky person. I'm the person who, you know, when I used to work in an office way back when, was always the person sitting in the back of the meeting making cracks out of the side of my mouth to the person next to me. So I like being able to be kind of wisecracky and fun and funny in a way that so many of my books are very serious. Although I think even when they're serious, I try to work in some humor because otherwise it's just too depressing. So I think that's real. I think part of it is just that you are inevitably choosing scenes and choosing events that stand in for entire things. So you can't include every single second of what you were doing, so you say, okay, I'm going to be this moment, this moment, this moment, and this moment, and those moments are going to represent entire days or weeks or months or years of thought or activity or you know whatever. And when you do that, it inevitably kind of flattens you and creates just this this character of you. And it's not so much that I think, oh, who is the character of Peggy? As she just kind of emerges, and she is me. But she's also not, I mean, with Waiting for Daisy, um, for a while, it was going to be a Hallmark movie. I know, it sounds weird, right?
1: <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, financially, you'd take it. Like, oh my could put it anywhere, you know? Yes, like... I would.
2: Although some stuff got very, very tricky in it. But but it didn't happen in the end. But um, part of why it didn't happen was because somebody decided the character of Peggy was too unlikable. <laughs> I kind of thought, am I, am I really unlikable? And I thought, a little bit, sort of, I mean, I guess it's part of that snarkiness, you yeah, know, like
1: couldn't they just fictionalize it slightly? If that's how they felt, could they just turn the dial a little bit?
2: I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. They didn't like her.
1: This book is very interesting to me, partly because when you start you it starts in, you know, the very beginning of the pandemic. And you're talking about a period that it feels like now many people would like to forget. Did this start with you thinking, I want to memorialize this in a way, like, I want to capture this? Or did it start more from idleness, like you described, not being on the road, not having the opportunities to, like, jet around and do the things you were doing before?
2: I I don't think I necessarily wanted to memorialize it. And in fact, my publisher kind of wanted me to play it down, which I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was the right call, honestly, but... um, I was just, I mean, like everybody, I was just shell shocked and panicked. You know, I i think I was like the last, one of the last people to get a book out and do like the normal book thing before I was doing Boys and Sex before lockdown hit. I mean, I actually, I write that I, I was on my way to the airport to go do a speaking gig for the book and I turned around. I, I thought, I, I don't think I should do this. And I canceled. But there, you know, since I wasn't working on anything, I mean, I think if I had been in the middle of writing a book at that point, I would have just blocked the whole thing out and just kept on going, Mm -hmm. but I had nothing. I had no work. You know, my plan was to do speaking gigs for a while and kind of knock around and take a break and figure out what I was going to do next. And so I just sort of went like slump, sitting in my chair, going, "Uh oh," (laughs) and you know, no work, uh, terror, and just trying to figure out how to cope. Really, I think I don't know if it was idleness so much as just like panic and trying to figure out what I was going to do so that I wasn't just, you know, washing my mail all day long. (laughs) And I had wanted to learn to shear sheep and I cannot fully say why, but I had always wanted to learn to shear sheep Um, for a long time. And I tried to get into this one class in Mendocino County uh, that's once a year to shear sheep, but it was always the first week of May. And I was usually out reporting or doing something. I couldn't do it. So suddenly uh, I actually, I thought, well, I've got time, got a lot of time maybe I should go learn to shear sheep now, as one does.
1: And did you think, maybe I should go learn to shear sheep now as I've wanted to do, and also that could be a story, that could be a book, or did that come later?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would have thought that it was a book if it weren't for the pandemic. I think I would. I was trying to always go shear sheep, and I thought, I think I'm going to write, you know, then I'll write a story about shearing sheep, just about that. But I thought they would make fun of me. I always, when when I think of a book idea, I have the book that I know they're going to go for, you know, like Girls and Sex or something. And then I have the book that I kind of would like to write, but it's, it's a little weird or a little kooky or a little eccentric. So for years I wanted to write, and this is not unrelated, but I'm the um, granddaughter of Homesteader and Lumberjacks, which is a little peculiar for a Jewish person. And my great grandparents were um, homesteaders in North Dakota. But th- there was actually a, a Jewish movement of homesteaders. First, in Ar- they were in Argentina, and then they went to North Dakota. And, you know, so I would always do that as like, I could do girls in sex, or I could write about Jews on the North Dakota prairie. And they would sort of go... Well, how about girls and sex? You know, <laughs> let's do the prairie thing later, Peg. You know, <laughs> like, sure, you can do that someday. So when I was talking to my agent after lockdown, I said, you know, I, I, I in this like tiny little, I, I, I kind of had this idea, and I was, I was kind of silly, but I kind of wanted to sh- make a sweater from scratch. And she just kind of went, "That's a great idea," because everybody. I I don't know if she would have done that three months earlier, but everybody was you know baking sourdough and making banana bread and doing whatever people were doing during lockdown. So suddenly it was very topical to decide to go off and make a strider. That's what everybody was doing. So uh, it suddenly made sense. <laughs> it feels like
1: there was a a natural suspense to it because you shear the sheep, which, well, we should say first, extremely difficult.
2: Oh my God, Evan. So difficult. It was ridiculous. I was so naive. I just thought, yeah, I think I'll go, you know, they're cute. Little lambies. Well, you get a scissors out. I don't know. I didn't know what you did. It is unbelievably hard. And they outweigh, you know, it outweighed me. You have to like get it on its back and keep it. It doesn't want to be there. It's not, it's not, it doesn't hurt them, but they don't want to be there. And they've got hooves and they kick and you have a hot whirring blade without a safety on it that could cut off your finger and did slice up my fingers. But it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm so glad I did it. It was the hardest
1: thing <laughs> And also, I'm always fascinated with like, in something that is first person driven, what's a kind of conceit, a little bit of an artificial conceit, and what's driven by circumstances. And in this particular case, it felt like the limited amount of wool that you could get by shearing the sheep was actually driven by circumstance. Like there wasn't some machine uh, you could buy the wool, I guess. But like, yeah. I just assumed like, well, you could probably just do it with a big machine that they stand under, which turned
2: out to be untrue. No, people have tried. People have tried to make all kinds. I mean, I a lot of this is, you know, in the way that like a book like Salt or something talks about like everything we've ever never thought about about salt. I wanted to kind of do that. All the things you never thought about, about how we get our clothing from figuring out who started, you know, how did somebody think of thread? How did that happen? You know, like all this kind of stuff. And one of the things with sheep was like, why isn't there a mechanized version of this? Why are there no machines where you just stick the sheep in like in some kind of Wallace and Gromit? cartoon and out it comes with the and there it's still something that has to be hand done and i was going to be the whole project was going to be shaped and limited by my ability to get a credible amount of wool off of the sheep yeah which i kind of did
1: yeah i mean i love that stuff that was in there it was sort of like we don't think about where our clothes come from in the way that now people think about where their food comes from, or at least yeah. more so maybe than they did before due to a lot of, you know, Michael Pollan or whatever else. What was the balance you wanted to strike between your story and sort of that type of more research reported material?
2: You know, when I go into um, my books, I don't generally know. I mean, maybe everybody's like this. Either I have no, like when I did Girls and Sex, not Boys and Sex so much, because then I had done Girls and Sex, but like when I did Girls and Sex, I had no agenda whatsoever. I had no idea what I was going out to look for. I just thought, I feel like something's there. And I didn't know what kind of balances I wanted to toggle between, although my work has always had that quality of toggling between kind of active reportage and background and, you know, sort of going back and forth. But I don't necessarily know what it's going to be. And with this book too, it's sort of, I was thinking, okay, well, I've got the personal story. I don't know how much of that, you know, I don't know how interesting that's going to be. So part of it is that I write, it's, it's a little bit instinctual. I think, okay, this is interesting to this point. I've either hit a dramatic pause or it's going to get boring now. Um, it's time for a break. And then I would go into either, you know, something from my background or something lore and history about whatever fiber or, or mythology or, you know, all the different things. And I always think about whether it's an article or a book that I'm braiding those strands. And so when you kind of you know, pull one strand over the next one. You know, just like with braiding hair, it's a little bit of a of an instinct. It's a little bit like, okay, that looks too thick. Let's make that a little thinner. So mm-hmm. it's not something I plot out.
1: This is maybe unique relative to your other books in that this is something that you had wanted to do, had wanted to try. It's way more complicated and difficult than I might've expected. Do you think it would be have been a more pleasurable experience if you were not writing about it? Like did, did the fact that you needed to generate a book out of it create pressure around it and make it work in a way that it would not have otherwise been?
2: I mean, I don't know if I would have gone through with it if I didn't have a book contract. Certainly the shearing. I I would have said, forget this, man, this is impossible. But I find that when I have to step outside of myself as a writer, regardless of what I'm doing, that I will do things and go further than I would if I weren't. So I always think back on, there was a story I wrote a long time ago for Details Magazine when that existed. And it was about kids that were called gutter punks. They're basically homeless kids in New Orleans. And I was hanging out with them and we were in some really dicey parts of the city. And I was walking along and thinking, gosh, I would never do this if it were just me. But I put on my superhero journalism cape And like, yeah, sure, I'll go wherever I'll do whatever I'll, you know, put myself in danger, I'll shear a sheep, you know, like, so it's, there's like a different part of me that acts in those situations. But I feel like I'm such an observer of my own life. Like I've done that for so long that I don't know if I could shut that off. It's not like I say, I'm going to write about everything I do, because I don't write about everything I do. But if I'm going to do something that is atypical, I don't know if I could look at it, not with a writer's eye.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you know so I don't don't know how to answer that question because I can't imagine that I would ever have taken on something like this and not thought maybe I'll write about it I think also about I did did a piece years ago also on um, that was the centerpiece for Waiting for Daisy that was about having this miscarriage in Japan and going to try to do this ritual there that is in Japanese Buddhism to make an offering to a bodhisattva called Jizo that will guide the spirit of a miscarried or stillborn or or dead young child into its next life. And so it was something to do, which I don't have in my tradition, to mark that this thing had happened. And I didn't go into it thinking, I'm going to do this and I'm going to write about it because I was just in pain. But the day that I went to try to find this place and make it work and everything, I, I couldn't not take notes. And I had to force myself at one point to say, put the pen away, have a moment that is just here. And I did. And then I went home and I took notes on that. And I didn't end up writing the piece for another year after that, but it's hard for me not to take notes on my experience. Mm -hmm.
1: And how do you do it? Like when you shear the sheep, you obviously can't do it while you're shearing a (laughs) sheep, but then do you say, okay, I need to go take 20 minutes and go write down everything that just happened. Do you do it later that night? What's the actual logistical process by which you get that down?
2: It kind of depends when I was taking a break. I mean, there were breaks. You know, I would sit and really quickly write stuff down or, uh, you know, I had lunch. I, I stopped and had lunch and I wrote things down. On the way home in the car, I talked into my phone. The the things that I feel like I learned and try to uphold starting with doing my first book were that, and what I always tell younger writers is like to think of your eye as a camera. And if you notice something, no matter how stupid or trivial you think it is, write it down because there might be a reason you noticed it and you might realize later why you noticed it Mm -hmm. and do it as fast as you can like as close to the experience as you can and write up your notes within 24 hours because you will forget otherwise so i still try to do that so talking if the phone has made that easier because i can just talk into the phone and have it you know do the note thing and then transfer that to my computer later
1: Well, I want to talk a little bit about you being a younger writer because this book kind of, there's a lot in there about you living in the Bay area. And then you sort of mention at one point coming out there for a boyfriend and a magazine job many, many years ago. Yeah. And I want to know a little bit more about that moment <laughs> and uh, what you were doing that sort of brought you out there to begin with.
2: Uh, I started out in New York, you know, I early, I, I think when I was, after I wrote Schoolgirls, I read this book. Academic paper about how men have a tendency when they talk about their careers to talk about what they did. Like, say, I did this, I did this, I did this, like to be the actors in their own story. And women have a tendency to talk about their careers as a series of accidents or things that other people helped them achieve. And so I always try to sort of do it the other way, but it's hard because I do feel like I was kind of stumbling along. But I went to New York because I'm from Minnesota and I went to New York because I had been, done an internship with an editor at Ms. Magazine on a, a anthology on feminism around the world. And I went back to college and she said, you know, we're going to do a conference when this book comes out and you can work on the conference. So I thought, Oh, great. I've got a job. I'm the only English major in America who has a job. <laughs> at graduation." But it was, you know, before cell phones and everything. So it's not like I was in touch with her for the next year. I was just like, yeah, I've got a job, like an idiot, like a, you know, and so I was 21. I went out to New York and uh, no, they had, you know, th- that wasn't happening. <laughs> so I had nothing. Uh, and, and I was working at this horrific, Somebody that you had on recently was talking about a similar experience, Katie, I think, that I was working in this tiny publishing company, you know, where I sat in an air shaft and I was, my job was cutting up their old catalogs and pasting them down for their new catalog. And it was, you know, I thought, this is my life. It was just like, go home and cry. And my brother had introduced me to somebody that he'd been freshman dorm with, who happened to be Adam Moss, who's a legendary editor. And Adam hired me to be his assistant at Esquire. So I sort of got my foot in the door as an assistant at Esquire, typing manuscripts onto a 40-character line on an IBM Selectric, Xeroxing them and passing them out to all the editors. And uh, yeah, that was my first job and sort of worked my way up.
1: Was there a breakthrough moment where you were given a chance to write something and you took hold of it?
2: When somebody said, the understudy has broken her leg. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, slowly. I mean, Adam was Adam was really great, and and we worked together for some time. I helped found this magazine with him called Seven Days that that was around for a little while. But there was another editor there, Betsy Carter, who sort of took me under her wing, and she went off to start a magazine of her own and said, "You're going to write a feature." And I wanted to be a writer, but I did not. I was very let's just say underconfident. I never took a writing class in college. I didn't write for the newspaper. I just wanted to do it, but I hadn't really done it. So she said, you're going to write a feature. And it was weird because it was on this. uh, It was, there was no reason for her to have assigned this to me, but it was on a Japanese woman journalist who had died. It was a posthumous profile. Her name was Atsuko Chiba and she had died of breast cancer. And I had nothing to do with Japan at that point. I had not had cancer at that point and had no reason to think I ever would. And just it ended up Years later, so many of the things in that piece came back in my own life. It was sort of eerie. So, you know, I ended up marrying a Japanese-American guy and spending a lot of time in Japan. I've had breast cancer twice. You know, like, reread this profile, and I think, oh, my God, I became her. That's b- Except that I didn't die. I didn't do that part. So she sort of teed me up for the first feature, and then I moved out here to the Bay Area. And back then, there really were not a lot of journalists, national journalists, living here. So. The New York Times, I knew somebody who was an editor there, and they, they didn't trust California writers. They, they had a kind of a suspicion. And so they thought of me as kind of an extension of New York. And also, I think I benefited from a kind of, I benefited from sexism. So I didn't have to actually know anything about the subject, as long as it was a woman. So my first cover story for the New York Times Magazine, which was my first story for them, was about this woman named Sylvia Earle, who was the head at the time of the National Oceanics and Atmospheric Administration. She's a really renowned, amazing marine biologist, like the Rachel Carson of the Sea. I never even took high school biology, Evan. There was no reason for me to be doing that story, except that she was a woman, and I was a woman, and she lived in the Bay Area. and i I had to learn to scuba dive. I mean, it was an incredible thing. Wow, that was one of the huge breakthroughs, yeah.
1: And you you said you never took a writing class. Did you learn just by doing? Did you have mentors that helped take you through the process, either reporting and writing?
2: I mean, I took a writing class in high school, like a really good one. Um, well, I think that being an editor, so I, I was at Esquire for three years, and then I went to this short-lived magazine called Manhattan Inc., and then I went to another short-lived magazine called Seven Days, and then I was at Mother Jones for three years after that when I moved out here. And I think when you're an editor, you really get inside the guts of stories and and you have to, you know, like figure out how to take them apart and put them back together and what works and what doesn't work with other people's work. And sometimes with very excellent writer's work and sometimes with, you know, not so excellent writer's work. And so I think that that was sort of, sort of taught me a lot about writing. And I always wrote, I just didn't write publicly.
1: Yeah. I had that with fact-checking. I feel like getting to see how it's made and having your hands in how it's made gives you a real sense of, especially where things can go wrong. I found, I mean, not that I don't go wrong in the same ways at times now, but.
2: Maybe even more than writing yourself to a certain degree, you know, you really, you just learn structure. And I mean, I don't, I don't know that you can learn style that way, but you certainly learn mechanics, structure, storytelling, that sort of thing where things should start which is usually on page
1: three, you know? -hmm. This new book is a little bit different in that it branches out in all these ways, but it's, it's almost like a tighter story because it's a narrative of what you're doing, but you've written these books where you've just taken on the biggest topics, you know, like kids and sex is just an enormous topic. And I'm always interested in where you start. You're staring at this. You're saying, okay, I'm going to write a book about girls and sex. Mm-hmm. Where exactly is your entry point into something like that?
2: You know, I always think I should be able to answer something like that. I, I feel like there's a way that when a book is done, the process falls out of my head and I don't <laughs> know how it happened, which is not always so great because then when I start a new book, I think, how did I, how did I do this? But I think with the, with girls and sex, I just started talking to girls wherever I could find them. In high school, there's always like a, a designated cool teacher. And so I would try to find designated cool teachers who could connect me with kids or journalism teachers. And I would just do these interviews and I did really some really bad interviews, really bad interviews first with some some girls where there's you know a couple in particular I look back on and I was just so judgy. You know, they would say something in the interview and I go, What? <laughs> Why would you do that? like you know, so I wouldn't say that, but you know, I, I could tell I was conveying that, and they would ghost me after that. I tried to get back in touch with them, and they would just never speak to me again. And I had to kind of learn in those books to really listen openly to young people's experience and not try to impose my adult sense of like, why the hell would you do that such a thing on them? So with that, I just I can't even, I can't even really remember why how I started but i think i just started um talking and talking and talking to people and really the i think the the thing that's hard is that i don't i don't know what i'm going to do i have like sort of a a vague sense that there's something out there that needs to be talked about i'd obviously been writing about girls for a long time in different contexts and sexuality had come through periodically so it wasn't like i was completely had never thought about it at all but i didn't know what how a new generation was going to be thinking about this. And the challenge is to withstand that, to not want to say, "I need to know what the book is about. I need to, you know, have my chapters. I need to know what exactly I'm looking for, because it's really scary to just go out and report and have trust that there's going to be interesting things and that if you just keep going, you're gonna find them. So to not foreclose, possibility and options and ideas is the biggest reporting challenge for those sorts of books for me.
1: Yeah. It sounds a bit terrifying to me to not have that roadmap.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't have a roadmap for those books.
1: And do you have strategies for making younger, you've interviewed so many young people Mm -hmm. for making them comfortable, the things that you're asking them to talk about. It's just, I don't do that kind of reporting. And it's sort of hard for me to imagine sitting across from hundreds of different young people and asking them these questions. And I I want to know how you create the rapport necessary to do that.
2: I wasn't very good at it at first. It was hard for me to just be open and curious and not impose my, my ideas about what they ought to be doing or betray surprise or shock. But I think the truth is, I don't think there's any trick to it. I think they want to talk. And I think they wouldn't agree to talk to me if they didn't want to. And of course, there's also a bunch of interviews that you never hear from. Like there's a bunch of people interviews that I did that aren't in the book. Yeah. Um, well, because not you can't put everything in the book, but also you know sometimes they were repetitive. Sometimes they were just terrible interviews. It doesn't work every time. But honestly, I think it's just that I ask. And when somebody asks you something directly and doesn't seem to be embarrassed or hesitant or anything about it your kind of reaction is to, to answer. I just was in, um, we had uh, some people over for New Year's Day and a friend of mine whose son's girlfriend was in town, their college students. And the girlfriend was a big fan of girls and sex and was really excited about meeting me. And I thought, this is going to be hard because I'm not, I don't have that cap on when I'm in my house, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in my house. I've got friends and their children over and I'm being like the adult me and the mom, me, and this is, you know, I have to really, my daughter does not want me to be the person who's asking her friends a lot of direct questions about, you know, like that's not okay. So it wasn't the same person, or it is the same person, but it's not, you know, I I wasn't playing that role at that party. So I didn't really want to and wasn't able to have the kind of conversation that I would have if I'd met that same girl on her college campus.
1: Do you benefit from not being a kind of authority figure or figure at all in these kids' lives? Like It feels like if an authority figure in their lives sat them down and asked them those same questions, they would get a wall.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a few things. One is with the boys, I was worried about being a woman, but I think that that turned out to be an advantage. Uh, And also I look like their mom, you know? But I think it was an advantage in that when men confide, they tend to confide in a woman. And I think that I got, for whatever they didn't tell me, I think there were more things that they did, especially about their emotional state and their psyches. So that really worked. But, you know, I used to think when I started, when I I was reporting school girls, gosh, I was 30, I think, when I started that book. So I used to get, when I would be in the hallway of the school, I would get yelled at by staff for not having a hall pass. You know, like, where's your hall pass, kid? And back then I thought, oh, I'm like the camp counselor you know i have like that role and then that kind of evolved and now i don't know i'm like the you know the hip aunt or the the cool mom not to my kid i am so not the cool mom so yes i think that that's true and i think it is a contract that you that you enter into right with a with a source whether that source is 13 or 83 why are they there if they don't want to talk
1: you mentioned all the interviews that don't make it in do you have a system for reducing all of that reporting down to the writing?
2: Kind of. I mean, sometimes I'll pull the the interviews that are sort of, you know, the best um, or that seem the most coherent. And I might break them up and see like, who's talking about what, you know, masculinity or something like all the quotes from the different boys on masculinity. But part of it is that, not that many people. Well, I will go back for, for a second. In, when you're saying, you know, why people talk to me, I do find that when people, when the kids talk, they had something they wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Like I could ask a lot of questions, but that didn't always go so well. I had to figure out what why they were there. They were there to talk to an adult about sex for a reason. They had a story they wanted to tell. So finding what the story was that they wanted to tell. And there's a lot of overlaps in their stories. So it was finding the story that resonated with the other ones. So it it was reflective of the greater reality and the greater experience, but also had enough specifics and narrative arc that it could stand on its own. So there's not that many that fit that criteria. So somebody might say something amazing and profound about hookup culture, but their particular story isn't so great. So trying to find where those things all intersect is the challenge.
1: And then do you pull the ones that have the narrative? Do you sort of pull them aside and then build around them?
2: Yeah. And with those books, I mean, with any book in the writing for me, and it's another sort of piece of advice I always give is, I don't start from the beginning. When I wrote my first book, I tried to start from the beginning. And I wrote the first chapter, I think, 15 times. (laughs) And I would just lay on the ground and I would would cry and think, I cannot do that. I mean, because again... Didn't take a right. I don't know how to write a book. Nobody told me how to write a book. It was just like, okay, now you're going to do this. So I just, it was just awful. And also, if you start from the beginning, you're going to try to put everything into the introduction or the first chapter. So I start with the chapter I can start with. I start with the thing that I feel the most confident about or where I feel a story that I know I can tell is, and then work backwards and forwards from there and keep going through and moving, you know, move things around or edit or change so that. It goes linearly but i really start in the middle and the beginning and the end are usually the very last things the beginning is usually the very last thing i write
1: and psychologically what is that process like are you a person who's tortured by the blank page or you've you've done it enough that you know how to like get yourself moving every day
2: that would depend on when in the process you ask me like now i I, you know since i just finished a book i'm like yeah no it's fine but yeah i'm pretty tortured all the way around but i think to a degree I can see after, I'm trying to think of how many books I've, I think I've written eight. After eight books, I do recognize that feeling of sort of panic or self-loathing or the need to play spelling bee for an hour and a half instead of write is kind of part of the process. You can't, you're not a machine, you know, you can't just sit down and write and have that work perfectly all the time and never, you know, just expect yourself to be right there every minute, every day. I, it's not that I don't feel that anymore, I still feel it, but there's part of me that can also step outside of it and say, this is the part when you feel that. I mean, I used to say, I remember um, actually talking to, I think I was talking probably to our mutual friend, Doug McRae, when I was writing Girls and Sex and saying, I can't do this. I have to think of an, I, there's always a point where I think I'm going to do a different book instead. And then, <laughs> I'm going to throw this one out and I'm going to tell them I'm not going to do this one. I'm going to write one on this topic. Or you're like, I can't do that. that that's not and he said, don't you always feel this way when you write a book? Every book, don't you get to the point where you think you absolutely can't do it? It's not going to happen and you need to write something else. And I sort of said, yeah, but, but this time I mean it, this time it's really true. This time it's never going to happen. But I do recognize that that's part of the process. And that's another place where you have to, I mean, I think writing takes such profound trust even as it also takes or exacts from you complete doubt. And I always think about, you know, Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, her iconic book on writing. She talks about a, a radio station called KFKD, Kfuct, that plays in every writer's head. And one speaker is like saying, you're the best, you can do this. You're one, And the other one is like a hit parade of self-doubt. And you have to shut both of those. You've got to turn the volume down on both of them in order to... Ego to coherent paragraph. That really landed with me. I think that's really true.
1: It relates back to something that's in Unraveling. You mentioned this, this concept of creative mortification. Yeah. Maybe you can explain what that is. I thought that was, I thought that was amazing. Isn't
2: that the best? <laughs> um, it's Ron Baghetta, who's a professor, a psychologist who works in creativity. And I, for years I had this Linda Berry cartoon up on my wall, probably till we moved to our new house, that where she's, you know, she talks about the two questions. Is this good and does this suck? And when those come in and how those sort of start undermining your creativity, how when you're a kid, you're just like crazy, you just create stuff. And then at some point you ask these two questions. And Ron Bagueto talks about how at a certain point everybody, usually it's in elementary school, somebody judges you too harshly, somebody critiques you too harshly on whatever it is, your your cello playing, your drawing, your sports, whatever that creative act is, big or small. And It's called creative mortification, and you you're mortified, and you know that's the same root as as dying, right? And you never pick up that pencil again. You never pick up your bow again. You put your cleats away. So, trying to transcend our own creative mortification, whether it's because you're writing, you know, you're doing something professionally, or just Doing something little, what they call little C creativity, and I think for me, one of the real values in doing this project of, of going from you know shearing a sheep to processing and carding wool to spinning it to dyeing it to making a sweater was about relearning and reappreciating and re-enjoying creativity and being an amateur. And being, you know, having that beginner's mind, because when you write for a living and when you really, you know, I really make my living writing, there is not, I don't have a backup. This is what I do. And, you know, to a degree that puts a kind of pressure on me to to do things, do them well, do them on time, all of that. But it also means that you're always thinking about the marketplace. You're always thinking about whether you're going to get paid. You're always worried about whether things are going to sell. And that can erode some of the just pure joy that was the reason you got into doing this in the first place. So I felt like it helped me rethink and recapture some of that beauty of just being like, you know what, the result of this really doesn't matter. It's the joy I'm taking in doing it along the way. And that was just glorious.
1: When you get to the end, I don't know if this will prove true with Unraveling, but when you get to the end of some of these other books, it feels like you're identified as an expert in these areas. And part of that feels also like a commercial part of it too, where you might be able to do speaking gigs and people will have you come talk about it. And that's a sort of mandate of doing something like that. But do you feel comfortable as the expert when you get to the end of the process?
2: I so love that you asked me that because I actually, you know, ish, but I really consciously, when I started as a writer, thought about my voice as being anti-expert. Um, I partly became a writer and not an academic, I, I, you know, English major. And I thought about going to graduate school. But first of all, my boyfriend at the time took the GREs and got a perfect score. So I was like, well, I'm not doing that. I hate standardized tests. And secondly, um, I was really interested in feminist critique of academia. And the whole idea was like dismantling authority, dismantling expertise, all this. But... It was all done in the language of authority and expertise. So it was completely inaccessible unless you had that education. I thought, Mm. there's something wrong with this. This is not, I mean, how can you dismantle authority in language that excludes everybody? So I thought, you know, I don't want want to do that. I want to be somebody who writes conversationally. I mean, I, I really write very much like I talk and really accessibly. And so I had this notion, though again, there's a way that that in itself is sort of a, a feminine trap that women tend to resist expertise, whereas men take it on fairly readily. Um, and I don't mean <laughs>
1: undeservedly. That, it, well,
2: I don't mean to be that, <laughs> but you know, that's like one of the issues with editorials, right? That on the opinion page, there's been a, a underrepresentation of women, and I could see this in myself. I, I used to have a boyfriend who was another journalist, and if he had an idea for an editorial. It didn't matter like if he was the world's expert or just like hadn't he would just be like boom out the door pitching it. Whereas I would sit there and go, I don't know, like does anybody really want to hear about me, you know, from this about me? I don't know if I have the authority to talk about it. and plus I have to make dinner, you know. By the time I worked that all through, the moment had passed. And when I read somewhere that women did that and that this was, you know, not not to blame women for it, but that this was a phenomenon, I thought I'm going to try going the opposite way with that and just pitching everything. And I've written a lot of opinion pieces as a result. Mm -hmm. Some on things I know a lot about, some on things I don't. So I simultaneously resist expertise and also believe that I need to take it at a lower level and that I do have knowledge that's worth sharing. But when I'm writing, I really try to position myself as a fellow traveler with my reader, not as somebody who's telling you this is how it should be or anything like that. But I'm always kind of in it, turning my pockets inside out and going, I don't know. I'm not sure what I think about this. What do you think about this? You know, this is what this person says. Uh, maybe I um, could be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very working through my own process along the way. And that is something that is really, really conscious for me.
1: Does writing a book about something tend to exhaust your interest in it?
2: I keep thinking that I, I thought for a long time that I was done with girls and I kept getting pulled back. So I can think that, and then it turns out not to be true. Or I feel like I'm, I'm really done with the teens and sex stuff. You know, I'm getting older. My kid is about to be 20. I, you know, it's rear view mirror, but then something happens. And I think, oh, it turns out I do have something to say about that. So I have things that I have definitely, um, been done with that I've done and you know whether it was a series of articles because people always want you to write about what you just wrote about typically so like now I feel for instance I don't know that I want to write anymore about cancer and I hope I don't have occasion to if something happened and I you know relapse then maybe I would but I feel like right now in my life done with that for a while I was writing about you know work family stuff done with that I think that I for better or worse whether this is solipsistic or not I tend to be a little bit linked to my own life cycle in my writing. I do think what's what's kind of weird about memoir is that it I mean, I think this is true of all the books, but since it's my life, it's a little different, that it takes it becomes what happened. And like I, you know, it is it is a version of what happened. But once you've chosen those scenes that represent your life and such, it's like when you have a photo album, right? And your memories you realize are really about those photos. They're not about the event itself, you remember because you have a photo of the event, and what I'll remember about the pandemic and all of that is probably what's in that book, and the rest of it I won't remember. So when I look at my shelf and I think it's strange to have your life kind of codified in that way. Mm-hmm. And I know my subjects too. I'll just say like oh, the, the the girls. And I'm still in touch with some of the kids from the girls and sex and boys and sex, and they're older now. You know, they're adults, and they both appreciate having their college self memorialized and they think it's kind of funny. Or, you know, like, they can't believe how they thought, but it's also a little weird 10 years later, not to be able to escape that. <laughs> but, that's there, you know?
1: but the same will potentially prove true for you. You yeah. know, like, like unraveling has, is a snapshot of this moment. There's a lot of existential questions in there and you have, you know, your mother has died and your father is aging, and then your daughter is getting close to, you know, leaving the house or has left the house. And there's this, you're at this particular moment. Do you feel like writing the book helps push you past that moment? Because as a reader, I don't, it stops. I don't know where you are the day after you finish the last page. Because
2: I don't think it really, yeah, I don't think it fully, I mean, I think I'm, I'm in a different place with that moment, but I feel like I'm in a major life transition right now. And one that we don't tend to talk and write as much about. Um, We spend a lot of time, particularly in women's lives, talking about the period of time when we raise children, if we raise children, but you know, that's actually in our current life cycle, not that long. And there's a really long time after that's over. And uh, it's a time that requires a kind of reinvention that we aren't talking that much about. So I feel like that's where I'm at. I'm trying to figure out what, and because it hit me simultaneous to lockdown and the pandemic, I kind of was made the transition in a more abrupt way than maybe I would have otherwise.
1: Do you feel like the same person, you describe this like person who moved from, you know, Minnesota to New York and then started dressing in all black and working at magazines and becoming a writer do you feel like that same person, but just with a lot more experience or a, an entirely different person?
2: I've been actually thinking about that a lot lately. Partly this is a little tangential, but I i just saw the movie After Son. Have you seen that?
1: I haven't yet. I've, it's, it's been recommended to me, but so I haven't seen it.
2: Good. But there's a point where the little girl asks her father, who's only 31, she's 11 and he's 31. She said, what, were, what did you do on your 11th birthday? which causes this whole thing with him. But I thought, I stopped and thought, I'm sitting in the theater and thought, what did I do on my 11th birthday? God, I have no clue. Do you know what you did on your 11th birthday?
1: No, no, I don't think so.
2: Right? And so like, are you still that 11 year old? Or not? If you can't remember who that 11 year old was. Yeah. So I feel like, I mean, I have some journals from that time. And similarly, again, to when you look at a photo album, the things you remember are the things that were photographed. The things I remember are the things I wrote down. I can access that girl. And I certainly can, the the period at the end of my time in New York, particularly, which was kind of a wild time in my life and another big transition. And I was trying to decide, you know, who I was, who I was going to be, who I was going to date, what I was going to write, if I was going to write, you know, all these things. And I'm living in this mouse-ridden apartment in the West Village. And I think the thing is, though, that you look back on those times with the kind of nostalgia that you swore you never would. (laughs) Like I look back on the mice. I mean, I cannot tell you how many mice (laughs) How many mice? And now I look back go, oh, remember the mice? <laughs> uh, <laughs> remember the time you caught 20 in one night?
1: <laughs> those were the days.
2: Those were the days, the most days.
1: <laughs> okay, I have a couple more questions. One, we talked about this a little bit before we started. At the beginning of 2020, the pandemic, you had a book out. You were like going ar- around and talking about it in this sort of like the old way. Mm-hmm. And now you've written a book through the pandemic and you're sort of coming out on the other end, not that it's, you know, over, but that things look different. So what is this experience like for you, sort of like launching a book?
2: Yeah, it's really, really, really different. So book tours are gone. And I, you know, to be fair, they were sort of on their way out anyway, I think, to a degree. Um, but for me, they had been very successful and I had and with Boys and Sex, I you know, so many people came out and the book tour was, I mean, it's a victory lap and all that, but it's not it's it's this chance to connect with readers in person doing the reading and stuff. that's nice. But it's the moments these little moments afterwards in a signing line, or the person who waits till the end, especially the teenager who waits to the end because they want to tell me something about how the what the books meant to them, or the person who I can always tell when somebody is a it, it, when it's waiting for Daisy that that's the book that that had connected with that's why they're there, and regardless of the current book. And, and that they want to talk about their journey or their pain right now in trying to have a child. You know, all these different things that I've written about and, and the ways that they've touched people come through the side door in a book reading. Um, it's not the main event, but it's the thing that happens after. And that is so very meaningful to me to know that I've connected with a reader, to know I've touched a reader, to be able to have a conversation. And sometimes more. I mean, I, there was one where this. Oh gosh! Right towards the end, this teenage boy—well, one—one was one boy was a Division One ball player and a bas- basketball player, and wanted to ask me about what he should do about locker room talk because he was so upset about the way that his teammates talked about women. But he didn't know what to—he didn't know what to do. And he said, you know, the thing is, is if you start challenging it you've got to these guys have to be a unit on the court you've got to be able to all get along and if you start injecting this controversy like that it's going to be a problem which was really interesting but we ended up having a long correspondence in the weeks after that and another boy who came up to me and he was just like he was like 15 i think and he was like vibrating and he the part where i I had talked about masculinity and the suppression of emotion and he said that that had really affected him and he wanted to know if I thought it was okay that he had not yet cried over the death of his best friend two months earlier. Hmm. And I was like, okay, this is a signing line. So, and also not a therapist. Um, but so, you know, I can't really address this, but I gave him my email and I said, if you want to talk about this, I'm happy to talk about it with you. And we ended up having a correspondence over the course of several weeks. And I finally convinced him and his friend had died by suicide. Um, And I finally convinced him that therapy was not just talking about how much you hated your mother and that he needed to get to an adult in his life and and get to therapy. I mean, and those are sort of big things, big little things, but that's not going to happen. You know, you're not going to have those moments of really deep connection in the same way when you're on Zoom or you're just sitting in your room and you never really know what happens. You know, it just it's out there and you don't know. So I really grieve the loss of the way that I was lucky enough to be able to roll out books. Not, and again, it's not, you know, the media is great. The readings are great. Ha- having people applaud for you. All that is great and fine and also very fraught in a lot of ways because you're constantly worried about whether it's going to go okay, whether you're going to sell, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's really those moments of deep connection with readers that I just am so sad to lose
1: hmm. Do you at least have because you've written books where you know that has happened? Can you hold on to the feeling that this book will also have that
2: well, impact sure. on people? I mean, you just won't see so. it. And people, you know, they still they write to you, they tweet at you, they, you know, tag you on social media. That's all nice, too. And I love that. And that still happens, obviously. But but yeah, I'm going to miss the in person. I'm really going to miss the in person.
1: The last thing I want to ask you one one thing that I feel that people would want to see in person, which I feel if you haven't already been asked, I'm, I'd be surprised if I was the first one is, do you have the sweater?
2: Yeah, well, the sweater's <laughs> on the back of the book. Well, so, I got
1: the I got the galley.
2: Oh, you have the galley, so you don't see it's on the back of the hardcover. Okay, a of the sweater, so you can see there on the back of the book. And this was actually I want, this was my idea. I thought it was a good one. On the back of the book, there is. Wait, let me grab it. Hang on. I would show you the sweater, but I sent it to um, I sent it to Vogue Knitting, and they haven't gotten it back to me yet. Oh. It's supposed to come back today, so I don't know if you're going to be able to see it. Actually, they used a they used a picture. They did not use my favorite picture, but I have a picture. There's a picture of me shearing. There's a picture of Martha, my the final sheep that I sheared. In me, there's a picture of all the yarn that I made and dyed. And there's a picture of the sweater in here. I'll hold it up so you can sort of see. Can you oh see? yeah,
1: there we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I would it's say it's.
2: Hideous. I mean, I say it's. There's see. There's on my yarn that I made. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> on the radio, can you all hear? I mean, on the podcast, <laughs> you can all see it, right? But the 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 sweater is not hideous, just lying there on the floor like that. But it looks terrible on me, and part of the reason is that I had this sort of body image meltdown and thought. Uh, I'm just going to make it straight. No shaping. I don't want to show my body in any way. And so it hangs off of me, which you know gets me back to these issues that I have with my mom and also connects with just about everything else I've ever written in my whole life. Um, so it hangs off of me in this really weird way that is deeply unattractive. Uh, <laughs> but that's OK. I don't mind because that wasn't why I made it. I didn't make it to. And also it weighs three pounds, which if you weigh a sweater in your closet, it maybe weighs a half a pound. It's wow. so, I don't know why. I mean, because I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing. That's why. Um, but it's incredibly weighty. And so I I would never wear it. But I know I don't even, I don't care about ever wearing it. That's not the point of it. Like, I'd like to frame it. If you can, again, all you podcast listeners can see this, I bet. Um, if you look behind me on my wall there, can you see those six squares?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The color. Um, that's the my indigo. Shades of blue. Yeah. yeah.
2: That's some of the indigo I did. So I love like the idea of just making this into my, sort of, um, you know, just kind of an art piece. Yeah. That's all it needs to be. But I do also think that this is probably how, I think a lot about how we could, partly, because I have this homesteading background and this Laura Ingalls Wilder obsession, even though Ma was racist and Laura thought that the New Deal was a socialist plot. Um, but the, the the idea of like these people, did they know how to do these things? Or did they just have, I mean, I think my, grand, my great grandparents, they came from Odessa, They didn't, they were city people. How did they know how to do any of this stuff? And then you have to like figure out how to knit a sweater on top of it. So I feel like this is probably the sort of thing that people, and they probably ended up with these itchy, rustic, stretched out, weird looking, like who cared? They were just out there pitching hay for the cows anyway, right? But they just needed something really warm.
1: Yeah. They needed three pounds of sweater.
2: They needed three pounds of sweater.
1: Well, Peggy, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, It's been lovely.
2: This was a huge treat. Thank you,
1: Evan. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Peggy Ornstein for coming on the show. Her book is out everywhere now. It's called Unraveling. Our show this week was edited by Gabriella Saldivia. Susan Peterson did the show notes. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week.
0: Support for long this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.